0: Welcome to the first sermon since the Sunday before Christmas that I've preached where I don't have to talk about sex. <laughs> I have been looking forward to this day. <laughs> many of you know the story. I've told it before, so I'm not going to tell it again. But the story about how my oldest son uh, got, got his job that landed him living now in Chicago. It is like many stories of first jobs, a perfect illustration That it's not what you know, but who you know that matters. So often it's relationships and connections that that allow us to take that next step in life or get ahead in life. But once you land that job because of that networking connection or relationship that you had, well, things change, right? Once, Once you land that job, your boss wants you to perform. So you better know something. All of a sudden, the, the, the proverb changes. It's no longer, it's not what you know, but who you know that matters. It's now, it's not what you have, but how you use it that matters. You may have lots of knowledge, skill, talent, but if you don't put it to work in that first job, you're not going to have that first job for very long. We're in a a series in first Corinthians entitled United we stand. And Paul has been dealing with the question of what, what makes us spiritual? What marks us as spiritual people uh, since really the beginning of chapter seven, this, this question of spirituality has been dividing the church. That different groups of people are claiming to be more spiritual than other groups of people because I follow this preacher or because I have these enlightened attitudes about sin or because I've given up sex. Well, so far, Paul has argued, it's not what we give up, but it's who we give ourselves to that marks us as spiritual people. And who do we give ourselves to? Well, as Christians, we give ourselves to Jesus Christ. And that sounds a lot like it's not what you know, but who you know that matters. But if you were here last week, you'll remember that, yes, Paul wants us to give ourselves to Christ but there is a proper way of doing so and an improper way of doing so. And as soon as you introduce that language of proper and improper, all of a sudden we're talking about how not who, what if being spiritual is more than just knowing God? What if it's also about how we put our knowledge of God to work? Are you, especially if you consider yourself a Christian, are you using your knowledge of God in Christ the way you should? How would you know? Well, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, if you're using one of the Bibles we've provided, that's found on page 1015, 1015. 1015. We're going to look at the whole chapter. It's just 13 verses, 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Now, as you know, Paul has been answering questions about marriage. And as we get to chapter 8, he turns to a new topic. The question now is all about eating meat that has been sacrificed to idols. Now, this topic is going to occupy him for like three chapters. In one way or another, we're going to be dealing with this, this topic, this question, uh, for the, at least the next three Sundays that I'm preaching until we get to the end of chapter 10. That might be four Sundays. Here's, here's what's going on this question about eating meat, sacrifice to idols, is really a question about what constitutes idolatry. What, what, what would make it clear that, oh, wow, I've slipped over and I'm participating in idolatry, or I'm not? Now, that debate is dividing the church in Corinth. Some are claiming to be more spiritual than others because their theology on this matter is more correct. Paul says it doesn't matter how good your theology is. If you're not using it correctly, it doesn't matter how good your theology is. If it's not in the service of love. Here, here I think, is his point in chapter eight, which is really just an introduction to this longer discussion we're going to be having over the next few chapters. But here's his point. It's not what you know, but how you love that matters. It's not what you know, but how you love that marks you as spiritual. And what he's going to point out in chapter eight Is that love, how you love actually has two objects, how you love God and how you love that brother or sister of yours, whose theology isn't as good as yours. Okay. So first, it's not what you know about God, but how you love God that matters. Look at verse one of chapter eight. Now, about food sacrificed to idols. We know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. But if anyone loves God, he is known by him. About eating food sacrificed to idols, then, we know that an idol is nothing in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods so-called and many quote unquote lords, yet for us, there is one God, the father, all things are from him and we exist for him. And there is one Lord, Jesus Christ. All things are through him and we exist through him. All right. As I said, Paul introduces uh, this this new topic: food sacrifice to idols. Well, we, we know that when when the folks came to him uh, from Corinth, they they brought a letter, and in that letter, they are asking him some questions. They had asked him questions about marriage and sex, and now they're asking a question about. Food that has been sacrificed to idols. And he he introduces the idea there in verse one. And then specifically in verse four, we find out, oh, it's actually about eating food that sacrificed to idols. Now, Now, what's interesting, though, is that instead of diving into the issue, he actually starts with their justification for eating. Verse one, we all have knowledge. He's quoting them, we think. We know that, yeah, yeah, as you say, we all have knowledge. And that knowledge is laid out very specifically in verse 4. He says, yes, we know that, quote, an idol is nothing in the world. And, quote, there is no God but one. So, yeah, we know that an idol is just a carving. It's just a little statue in his day made of wood or stone or metal. And and, and we know, yes, we know That there is only one God. He's actually referring or they are referencing the Shema, the confession of God that Israel is taught by Moses in Deuteronomy six that we heard read earlier. This is really strong theology that they're writing to him about as justification for what they're doing. And, and Paul doesn't disagree with their theology. He actually affirms it. But right away, he questions the way they are using their theology. You can kind of tell he he doesn't like this statement. We all have knowledge. Because they're using it as an excuse and as a justification to do what they want to do. And just like pro tip here, rarely is a good idea to use your knowledge about God as an excuse or justification to do what you wanted to do anyway. That's generally not a good idea. Right away. He kind of calls them out on it. He says, look, yeah, we all have knowledge, but knowledge puffs up. It makes you proud. Love. On the other hand, he says there in verse one builds up. That that language of building up is, is language that he's already used, and he's going to come back to it again and again as we get further into the book. He introduced it back in chapter three when he talked about the different gospel workers and how they use the gifts and the calling they have been given to either tear down the church or build up the church. He's coming back to that idea, and he's going to build on that idea as we move forward. He, he, he kind of points out something that we all know, right? Knowledge is proud of itself. Knowledge is always saying, hey, look at me. Look what I know. Did you know? Did you know this? You, you, you know, when, uh, when somebody comes up and it says, did you know? They're, they're generally not trying to educate you, right? They're generally trying to show off because they're hoping you don't know. And now they can tell you what they know. Yeah, knowledge, knowledge typically just builds up our pride. But love is really different, right? Love is not focused on self. Love is always focused on the beloved. Love is always asking the question, ooh, how can I do good for the object of my love? How can I help the object of my love? How can I build up the one that I love? And so before we even get to the specific theology that, that, that he's going to lay out, that they're writing about in verse four, Paul says, look, if this is the way you're thinking, if, if, if you're going to start with, well, you know, we all have knowledge. But if, that's, if that's the way you're thinking, you don't know God as you ought to know him. Verse two. If anyone thinks he knows anything, he does not yet know it as he ought to know it. Because it's not your knowledge about God and theology that matters. It's your love for God. Verse three, if anyone loves God, he is known by him. It is your love for God that proves that, you know, God, and even more importantly, it proves that God knows you. How do you know that the spiritual life of God is actually alive in you that is actually your spiritual life. It is not how many books by John Piper or Tim Keller or Mark Dever that you've read, or at least have on your bookshelf. It is not how correct your theology is though. Let me be clear. We want our theology to be correct. Paul doesn't rebuke them for having correct theology, like have correct theology, but it's not having the correct theology that, that really matters here. That, that, that is proof that the love of God, the life of God, is actually at work in you. Now, Paul says it's it's your love for God. It's your your actual love for him, not your knowledge about him, that proves that the life of God is alive. In you now, Paul's going to explore what that looks like. And we're we're going to get into it here in a minute. But as you consider your own life, just pause here for a moment. Is your heart filled with love and affection and delight for God? Or do you find yourself often kind of maybe resenting him? Maybe you're kind of irritated with him most of the time because he's not coming through for you the way you want him to, or he's kind of getting in your way of doing what you really want to do. Maybe you just know a lot about God. That's a dangerous place to be. James says in James chapter one, verse 19, that the demons know a lot about God. And it does them no good. They tremble in fear because they know they stand under his judgment and are going to hell. Now, I want to be clear here. I don't want you to misunderstand. I'm not saying, hey, you need to love God so that God will love you. So, So get your affections straightened out. Or God won't love you. No, that's not at all what I'm saying. John says in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19, that we love because he first loved us. Our love for God does not earn God's love for us in return. This is one of the most important ways in which God is not like us. We tend to love the people who loved us first. That's not God. God loved us first in the gospel and our love is a response to his love. Our love for God earns us nothing. It, it's simply the, the proof that God has already loved us and made us alive in Christ through the gospel. But how do we know we love God? We can, we can find ourselves feeling like we're in this, you know, subjective swamp always wondering about the quality of my affections, the quality of my feelings for God. Well, it's interesting as soon as John says in first John four, 19, we, we love because he first loved us. His very next statement is if anyone says I love God and yet hates his brother or sister, he's a liar. So, So, so it turns out that our love for God is very closely connected to our love for neighbor. And in fact, our love for God is demonstrated in our love for neighbor and particularly our brothers and sisters. It's a sad, but true fact that we can and often do turn Christianity into sentimental mush, right? We reduce it to nothing but warm fuzzies, warm feelings about God, We don't want to do that, but in reacting for some of us in reacting against the excesses of pietism and modern evangelicalism that just turns everything into sentimentalism in reacting against that, we we need to be really clear here. True, true spirituality is more than how we feel about God, but it is never less. It is never less it also cannot be separated from how we feel about each other. All right. So Paul has introduced the importance of love over mere knowledge, love for God over mere knowledge about God. And, and some of us need to examine our own hearts on that point. But, but then Paul gets kind of specific about their theology you see it there in, in verses four, five, and six. And, and, and I just want to say again, look, Paul agrees with the theology that they've written him. Paul agrees with it. He says, even though there are so-called gods and lords, those, those idols that are made in the image of things here on earth or things above in the heavens. Nevertheless, he says, Christians know that there is only one God, the father who made all things And for whom we exist. You see that there in verse six. And and, and then he adds there's only one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom all things were made and through whom we exist. So Paul says, absolutely. You are absolutely right. Those idols, they aren't anything, they're not real. There's only one God, and he's revealed himself through Jesus Christ. He made us. We exist for him. Jesus Christ was the the agent of creation. All things were made through him, says John in John chapter one. And therefore, we exist for him. So if Paul agrees with their theology, does that mean that he agrees they're free to eat food sacrificed to idols? Because after all, idols aren't real. There's only one God. Well, he's going to get to that, but he wants to do something else first. Do you notice what he does there in verses five and six? He spells out why it is that love of God and not mere knowledge of God is what matters, right? Because God is our creator. We exist for him. Uh, we don't like to think of ourselves as creatures. We we like to think of ourselves as creators, masters of our own fate, the creators of our own identity. But Paul's really clear here. No, you are a creature. God made you. He has creators rights over you. And just... As anything we made, we make for ourselves. So God made us. And so we exist for him. And and then he goes on to say, right? Because Jesus Christ alone is a Lord. he's, He's master. He is ruler. Then our lives are actually through his power. By his grace and according to his power. In, in other words, here's what Paul's doing by, by taking their theology and then drawing out the implications. The implications of the fact that there is no God but God and that the idols are nothing and Jesus Christ is Lord is not that you're now free to do whatever you want because the idols aren't real. That's not the implication of their correct theology. The implication of their correct theology is that God has an inalienable and unimpeachable claim on your life. Theological knowledge is not a tool that we get to use to justify our lives. No, theological knowledge is a truth that we must submit to. To know God, to know him truly, is to be brought into relationship with him, defined by the Lord Jesus Christ. Not not only were we created by him, this is the thing for these believers there in Corinth, for us here, through the gospel, through Jesus Christ, we are recreated for him. And so as believers, God actually has a, like a double claim on our lives by dint of creation and by dint of salvation, recreation. It takes us all the way back to, to, to what we looked at at the beginning of chapter seven. What, what marks us as spiritual is our contented obedience to the creator and Lord who made us who saved us and who now rules over us. It is the Lordship of Christ, not the logic of our theology that should determine how we live and how we love. We love God as Christians. We love him as our creator, as our sustainer and Lord. And as our savior, we owe him our very lives. But, but speaking specifically to Christians here this morning, and maybe especially to some of you who particularly fancy yourselves as really into theology. How often do we use what we know about God not to honor him as Lord, but to justify ourselves, to justify ourselves to ourselves, to explain our behavior, to justify ourselves to each other, to explain why you really can't have that claim on me that you say you have. You know, Jesus went after the Pharisees about this all the time. In in Mark chapter seven, he particularly rebuked the Pharisees, quoting Isaiah, saying that, that they were the kind of people who were worshiping God with their lips. That is, they had great theology, but their hearts were far from him. Are we ever guilty of using our knowledge of God to justify our distance from God? Think about, think about somebody that you know well. You have a lot of knowledge about them. Another, human, another person in, in your life. How do you use your knowledge about that person? Well, I would suggest it depends very much on whether or not you love them. When I'm at the DMV, I have a lot of knowledge just because I've lived for a while about how bureaucrats tend to think and act. I don't have any particular love for bureaucrats. I rarely have any particular love for the bureaucrat who's standing right in front of me. And so what do I do? Well, I use my knowledge about bureaucrats in general and maybe what I've been able to discern about the bureaucrat in front of me in order to get what I want. How do I use my knowledge, though, about Adrian or, or, or any of my kids, you know, if you saw me using my knowledge of them to manipulate them to get what I wanted, you would say, you don't love them very much. Do you? Well, it's no different with God. Is it? If, if we really love God, then we will use our knowledge of God in order to deepen our relationship with God, we'll use our knowledge of God to lead us into ever more worship, into ever more faithful service, into a deeper and more humble submission. Without love, we will use our knowledge, our correct theology, mainly just to justify ourselves. I love the way one theologian put it. God is known in proportion to the extent that he is loved. To the extent you love God to that extent and to that extent only will you use your knowledge of God to know him even better, to love him even more deeply. How are you using your knowledge of God today? What does it say about your love for God? It's not what we know about God, but how we love God that matters that shows that, that we are truly spiritual people with the spiritual life of God alive in us. But here's, here's the thing as I've already alluded to. And it's why I went to first John because it's where Paul is going to go. If we really know and love God, we're also going to love our brother. So second, it's not what you know about God, but how you love those God has loved that matters. It's not how it's not what you know about God, but how you love those God has loved that matters. Let's pick it up in verse seven. However, not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat. We're not better if we do eat. But be careful that this right of yours in no way becomes a stumbling block to the weak. for if someone sees you, the one who has knowledge dining in an idol's temple. Won't his weak conscience be encouraged to eat food offered to idols. So the weak person, the brother or sister for whom Christ died is ruined by your knowledge. Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother or sister to fall, I will never again eat meat so that I won't cause my brother or sister to fall. All right. So, so now Paul is getting down to the the brass tacks and he's really beginning to get into the issue that they've raised our love for God because he's our creator, our Lord and our savior has profound implications for our love for each other, including and maybe especially for brothers and sisters whose theology isn't as good as yours. Paul points out that not everyone in your church has the same theological knowledge that you do. You see that there in in verse 7. Not everyone has this knowledge. Some have been so used to idolatry up until now that when they eat food sacrificed to an idol, their conscience being weak is defiled. Plus, look, yeah, I, I get it. You know that idols are nothing, but some of your brothers and sisters, some of your fellow church members, they, they might know that in their head, but they don't really know it yet. They have been so shaped by years and years, a whole lifetime of idolatry that they simply cannot connect their theology to their specific actions. In this case, they, they, they cannot eat food, sacrificed to idols without it defiling their conscience, Paul says, which is, which is sin doing something that you think is wrong, whether or not it actually is wrong is sin. Paul makes this point very explicitly in Romans chapter 14, verse 23, where he says, everything that is not from faith is sin. Now, in, in this verse, Paul describes their conscience as weak, as opposed to strong. He doesn't mean here that they're weak-willed. What he means is that their faith is immature, like a, like a child is weak, right? It, his, his muscles haven't matured enough yet. So for, for these, some of these Christians, their, their faith is still immature. It is a weak faith. One of the ways that God reveals himself to us is internally. Now we often think of God's revelation as as something that comes to us externally, right? So he's revealed himself in some ways through, through nature, through the created world. We know something of his power of his, of his justice, of his righteousness, just, just by looking at creation. He's also revealed himself to us externally through Jesus Christ and through the scriptures that, that Christ inspired. So they're, 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 the, the main ways we think about God revealing himself to us are these, these external ways through creation and, and through the word, both the word made flesh and, and the word written down. But God also reveals himself to us internally. And one of the ways that he does that is through our conscience that, that, that inner sense of right and wrong. That's there in you because you as a human being were made in the image of God. Animals are alive. They even have a, a certain kind of consciousness of the world around them, but they are purely creatures of instinct They don't have a conscience. They they don't have a sense of right and wrong. And sometimes they feel guilty and sometimes they feel justified because of that inner sense. This is something unique to us as human beings created in the image of God. And it's one of the ways God reveals himself to us, but, but we need to be clear. The conscience, unlike the scriptures is not inerrant. It's not infallible. Sometimes we think something is wrong when it's not really wrong. And sometimes we're convinced that something is right when it's not really right. So we've got this thing called the conscience because we're made in the image of God. It's part of the way that God reveals himself to us. And, and yet it's, it's, it's faulty sometimes. And yet to go against it is sin. Cause it's not a faith. Ooh, so where does that leave us? Well, it means you need to educate your conscience. You need to always be about educating your conscience according to God's word. And yet, even while you're educating your conscience, you need to live by it. Martin Luther, when when he was asked to deny the teachings of the Reformation that he'd begun to teach, uh, said, said no. And he had several reasons for saying no, but one of them was, that he was convinced in his conscience that what he was teaching was biblical. And he said, it is never safe or right to go against conscience because that would be to go against faith. And so would be sin. So brothers and sisters, let me just really encourage you be about educating your conscience because you have to live by it. And you got no other conscience than the one you got. You can't live by my conscience. I can't live by yours. You must live by your conscience, but your conscience isn't always right. So educate your conscience. How do you do that? Well, I think this is where we go back to some of those external forms of revelation that God has given us. We need to go back to the word. Our our consciences need to be formed by the word. That's actually what Paul is doing right now for these, these people that are all feeling free in their conscience because their theology is correct. He's saying, eh, not so fast. You're not taking into account everything you need to take account. He's forming their conscience. So we need to be doing the same. We need to be submitting our ideas, our sense of right and wrong again and again and again to the scriptures, to what God has revealed in his word and what he's revealed through the person of Jesus Christ. And frankly, even what, what he has revealed to us, through the created world and the created order. One of the most important things that comes to us just from general revelation is the idea of intended use. Things were created for a purpose. And oftentimes it's going to be wrong to use your body or other people for purposes for which God did not create them. And that just comes to us from general revelation. So educate your conscience, study good theology, like your life depends on it because it kind of does right to, to to go against conscience is sin, but to be trapped by a conscience that has, has you doing what you think is right when it's actually wrong, or not doing what is right because you've got it backwards. Man, that 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 just puts you trapped in a in a context of ongoing unrepentant sin. We don't we don't want to be there. Educate your conscience because you gotta live by it. Here's the situation in Corinth. Some think it's fine to eat the meat, some think it's a sin. And you think, well, then just don't go to the temple then, right? Yeah, it's not that easy. This is a situation for the Corinthians that's going to come up again and again and again, almost every day. You see, they didn't have grocery stores back then. And there was no such thing as factory farming. A lot, maybe even all of the meat sold in the city of Corinth, uh, in the city of Corinth, would have come from butcher shops on the backside of those pagan temples. Because there was a ton of meat being sacrificed and you got to do something with it. So these pagan temples would set up butcher shops on the back. And that's where you might go and do your grocery shopping. Or um, one of your neighbors would throw a birthday party. Or an anniversary celebration, or, or some, some sort of like big party, inviting a lot of people to, do, to, to come to it. And so what would they do? They would do the exact same thing we would do. They would go rent like a dining hall or, or some sort of party venue, also known as pagan temples, because they had the best selection of meats on offer in the city. Every cut you could imagine was there. Or, or maybe, maybe your neighbor's just inviting you over, like for a weekend cookout. But here's the thing: those burgers on the grill that week on on, on Saturday afternoon at your neighbor's house, they probably were first sacrificed to an idol, and came from one of those butcher shops. Like, like you, you couldn't escape this issue. But then it gets even worse, right? They're going to be actual religious. Ritual meals at the temple to honor the local gods and the trade association that you're a part of, or your local neighborhood association is going to expect you to show up and participate so the business will be good next year, or or the city will be kept safe. In every one of those cases, the meat you ate. Would have first been sacrificed to an idol. But which of those situations counted as idolatry? And which of those situations don't? Well, like I said, Paul is gonna spend quite a bit of time thinking about this over the next few chapters. But but right now, at this point, as he's introducing this idea, he basically says: look, the the, the super spiritual, the, the knowers, people have this knowledge. Man, they're saying we are free to eat it because the idols are nothing. We are not participating in idol worship. And, and, and the weak of conscience, man, they were saying you could never eat it anywhere at any time, no matter what. And they thought they were the more spiritual for taking that position. So you've got two different groups of people, both of whom think they are the superior spiritual people because of the position that they've taken. When we get to chapter 10, Paul is going to make some distinctions and we're going to get some more clarity in terms of the specifics. But for now, what he says to both groups is why in the world are you dividing the church over this? Look at verse 8. Food will not bring us close to God. We are not worse off if we don't eat, we are not better off if we do eat. You're not better off by eating or worse off by eating. You're not better off by not eating or worse off by not eating. Spirituality, Paul says, he's been saying this, cannot be externalized that way. Remember what we saw a couple of weeks ago. It's not what we give up, or in this case, don't give up, that makes us spiritual. But who we give ourselves to. And so Paul says to these kind of super spiritual knowers in verses nine to 11, you should be concerned to love your brother sacrificially by not eating this meat. Even if his theology isn't correct, even if his theology isn't that good, you should be concerned to love him sacrificially rather than using your correct theology and your superior knowledge and the freedom that it brings To ruin your brother. Paul in in verses 10 and 11 here. So he says in verse nine, you need to be careful people. Like we're we're, kind of playing with fire here. This isn't just a theology debate. And and then verses 10 and 11, he kind of lays out a hypothetical that probably wasn't hypothetical at all. Someone who thinks it's a sin to eat this meat sees someone who doesn't think it's a sin eating this meat in the temple. And that's someone that person of weak conscience, rather than resting at peace in their own convictions, actually now feels encouraged to go against their convictions and they fall into sin. Paul uses really strong language there uh, at the end of verse 11. He's he says that in in doing so your, your brother or sister is ruined. It's actually, you could translate it destroyed. And it is a word that is very closely associated in the Bible with final judgment. I don't think Paul is saying here that someone who's truly saved can lose his salvation. That's not what he's talking about. He's already told us back in first Corinthians chapter six That idolaters will not inherit the kingdom of God, period. Idolaters will fall under final judgment. And essentially what he's saying is, look, your freedom to eat, because your theology is right, your freedom to eat might actually tempt one of these people, your brothers and sisters, who are so accustomed to idolatry to fall back into their old practices of idolatry not just sinning against conscience, bad enough, but actually falling back into idolatry. And that's bad because that would mean final judgment. It would mean they were never saved in the first place, but it gets worse. Verse 12. Now, when you sin like this against brothers and sisters and wound their weak conscience, you are sinning against Christ. Not only have you sinned against this weaker brother or sister, but but you've used your knowledge and the freedom that you think your knowledge gives you to actually sin against Christ who died for that weak brother. Brothers and sisters, when we harm those whom Christ loves, we harm Christ. And so you can understand the strength of Paul's conclusion there in verse 13. It's, it's hyperbolic, but, but it's clear. And and it, it helps us understand kind of the, the weight that he feels with this issue. He says, basically, and I really feel this. I would rather become a vegetarian. Like a fate worse than death, right? A vegetarian. than cause a brother or sister to fall. To fall not just into sin, but to fall under final judgment. The super spiritual knowers, whose theology is so good, and it is good. They're concerned about their freedom and their status. Paul is concerned about the church. And especially the weakest among them. I think this is one of the reasons, and this is, this is not what Paul is talking about. It's what Paul is assuming. So now I'm going to talk about something that Paul is assuming. It's not in the text. He's assuming it. I think this is one of the reasons why you should actually join a local church. Why should you join a local church? Well, for, for this reason, a, a local church makes it very clear in my member my commitment my vows of commitment to you and yours to me, it makes it very clear who I am particularly responsible for whose conscience I am particularly responsible for not wounding whose spiritual life and health and vitality. I am particularly responsible for, and if I have to sacrifice every single freedom for every potential possible Christian out there who might be offended, I'll never leave my room but you're different. I can actually know you. We can talk about these things. I can understand what the issues are. I need to know who I'm committed to. So as not to cause to stumble. How do you know if you haven't committed and who's particularly looking out for you? Every random Christian you meet throughout the week. Oh, No, the people in this room are looking out for you. That's actually what membership is. It's not a name on a list. It's the living out of public commitments to one another. And the public commitment in view right here is this commitment to be willing to even sacrifice for your spiritual good. Why wouldn't you want a whole bunch of people to make that commitment to you? Why aren't you willing, if you're not a member of a church, why aren't you willing to make that commitment? Think about your own life. This is for all of us members and everybody else. Is there anything, like, can you think of one thing that you would be willing to give up? in order to help a weaker brother or sister whose theology isn't that good and therefore kind of irritates you? Or do your own rights, your own freedoms always come first. It's not what you know about God, but how you love those that God loves that matters Our knowledge of God should show itself not in our theological debating skills. It should show itself in our love for God and our love for God is going to work itself out visibly and publicly in a willingness to sacrifice our freedoms for the sake of our brothers and sisters. Why am I so sure of that? Because that's what Jesus Christ has already done for us. You know, Paul talks about this in Philippians chapter two. Jesus didn't hang on to his rights. No, he, he gave up his rights. He gave up his right of being equal with God in heaven. He gave up all all of his rights to the, to the joys of being in heaven, to, to the love and respect of the human beings that he made, to the comforts of the world that he made. Gosh, Jesus gave up the right to a fair trial. Why did he give everything up? He gave it up for us. He gave up all of his rights and privileges for us on the cross, dying for us an unjust death so that we might not only be forgiven of our sins, but that we might know God and more importantly, be known by God if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this is the good news of the gospel that, that God himself voluntarily took on flesh and gave up all of his rights to live for you, to die for you, to get up from the dead for you so that you might have the right to be a son or daughter of God. I'd love to talk to you more about this, about what it would mean to turn away from pursuing your own rights and instead to trust in Christ and what he's done for you. I'll be sitting down front afterwards. Come talk to me. Talk, talk to the person that you came with. C- contact us in the church office this week if it's kind of too scary to talk here. But, but, but don't misunderstand who God is. He is the one who gave up everything for you that you might gain everything in return now christian does this mean that your christian liberty is it the complete mercy of someone else's bad theology or legalism a wrongly formed conscience and the answer is no paul here is talking about anything that might tempt a brother or sister into what they consider sin, because ultimately that could lead to their, their judgment and unrepentant idolatry or immorality. Quite often the outraged and condemning legalist is not tempted by your freedom They're just offended by your freedom. Let me take the one that you're all thinking about, right? Let me me talk about alcohol here for a moment. It's so much easier to talk about than sex. Let's take alcohol, right? Because this is something that people are divided over in the Christian community. And they have their consciences formed differently. People can have differently formed consciences, but then people can also be quite legalistic about it. I would never, I would never have a glass of wine over dinner with a a brother or sister who's recovering from alcoholism. I would never do that. I would not want to wound their conscience and tempt them back into a soul destroying sin. On the other hand, I might deliberately do it in the presence of a legalist. And it's because I was once that legalist. I was raised in a teetotaling household and I went off to college and did what most kids who are raised in teetotaling households do. I drank a lot of alcohol (laughs) that first year of college. But then the Lord got a hold of my life. I like turned my life around. And the pendulum swung and I wasn't just a teetotaler anymore. I was not like, Oh, Chris, like nobody could be a Christian drink alcohol. And I was reacting to my own experience. Right. Well, by the end of my freshman year, the Lord has turned my life around and, and the, uh, the, campus fellowship group that I'm in wants me to consider stepping into a role of leadership the next year in that group. And so one of the leaders has taken me out to interview me. And as we're, we're, we, we actually go to one of the restaurants on campus. That's a sit down restaurant. They come and they take your order. It's really nice. And uh, we're, we're waiting for the, the guy to come. And he's asking the, the waiter to come and he's asking me questions about myself. And he's asking me about my, my roommate. And I just go off on my roommate. Now, I really liked my roommate, but I kind of go off on him because uh, he was always telling me these stories of, of how he and, uh, like a pastor friend of his, and this is when he was younger in high school, would go out and drink beer together. Okay. Now y- you should not drink beer with people under age, but that's not what offended me. It was that a person who considered himself religious would even drink at all. That's what really offended me. And I was going off on this guy because I was a very immature Christian. Uh, and the waiter comes and he takes our order and, uh, I, I put in my order and all, and then my, my friend, and this is a leader that I really respected. I really looked up to him. And the very first thing he says is, so what beers do you have on tap? <laughs> and he orders a beer and he drinks that beer throughout lunch. As we talk about theology and leadership and the gospel. And I am like lesson learned because I could not deny that this guy really knew Jesus. I'd been watching his life all year. And I realized I had been revealed as the legalist. I didn't start drinking right away. It would be years before I kind of worked through everything and felt any sort of freedom to have a glass of wine with dinner. Uh, but what I knew right away was that my legalism was sin and his conscience was, was rightly free of being bound by my legalism. So what are the modern equivalents of eating food sacrificed to idols? And this is where we're going to end. It's kind of hard. This is a hard one. Um, in our outrage, kind of polarized context in which we turn everything into points of division, it can be hard to discern the use of alcohol might be one, as I just described in, in the presence of brothers or sisters recovering from the abuse of alcohol. I I think tempting them to start drinking again by drinking around them would be a lot like eating meat sacrificed to idols in the presence of those that are still shaped by idolatry. I think going to a sporting event on Sunday instead of going to church on Sunday might be one. But probably only in the presence of someone who, you know, kind of idolized sports and gave themselves so much to sports that they were neglecting their church family, maybe even neglecting their biological family. I know people like this. Maybe deciding which pronouns to use might be one. You know, if you were here for the series on gender, I, I said that, that maybe in terms of pronouns, we should be as gracious as possible and use people's, the names that they give us. And, and when we're with them, use the pronouns that they want us to use. Our use of words is not creating reality. In some instances, our use of words is simply showing respect to a human being. But I might not want to do that at all. If I were with someone who had come out of the LGBTQ community and through the use of my words might misunderstand and be tempted to go back to adopting those kinds of identities. In some ways, we actually don't have anything quite like the Corinthian situation. But every day... Every day, we have the opportunity to lay down our rights, to lay down our freedoms for the sake of our brothers and sisters, just like Christ did for us. And that's actually what next week's sermon is going to be all about as we move into chapter nine. Here's what I want to leave you with Can we see those opportunities? Those opportunities to lay down our rights and freedoms. Can we see those opportunities as opportunities to love? Or are we blinded by our knowledge? It's not what you know about God that matters. It's how you love sacrificially both God and neighbor that marks you as spiritual and brothers and sisters. You might be thinking of an example right now that just feels too hard. I want to assure you, you can love like this. Because Christ has already loved you like this. Lean into him. It's not what you give up, but who you give yourself to that makes you spiritual. Would you pray with me? Holy father, we confess that we are way too concerned about our own rights. We're way too concerned about our own freedoms. And we so often use good theology to justify a lack of love. Or we confess that we find it difficult to love in this way because We look at the people around us and they don't inspire love. Lord, I pray that you would take our eyes off one another and that you would put our eyes on Christ. That we would look at Jesus who gave himself for us and that in that vision, we would be able to demonstrate that we know you as we give ourselves for each other. And we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.